If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So the concept of contact tracing is is pretty straightforward. When you have a, a confirmed COVID-19 case, you want to find out who else was in contact with that individual. Uh, so you want to be able to try to get ahead of it and and isolate or test for other potential cases. Uh, so we'll, we do a lot of that the old-fashioned way. Uh, Alberta Health has a lot of people working uh, strictly on contact tracing, working the phones, and trying to get in touch with anyone who might have been in contact with that positive case. Now, it becomes a greater challenge when, when people are out doing more. Obviously, the length of time it takes to test and get results back has an impact. But when people are in crowded uh, public spaces, it's, it's tough to know exactly who they might have been in contact with. And that's where technology can come into play. Uh, that if you have an app on your phone and somebody else has that same app on their phone, and either you test positive or they test positive, then maybe there's a way of knowing whether you were in proximity to that person and letting you know. That was the idea behind AB Trace Together, the app launched by the Alberta government back in May. Uh, they did run into some issues, uh, particularly for iPhone users, that it wasn't able to run in the background. It was something that they had to go in and activate, which is a potential obstacle. Now, the Alberta Privacy Commissioner had looked into that and, and raised some concerns, but more or less um, signed off on it. So that was back in May. So in fairness to the Alberta government, we, we were certainly ahead in that front. But it appears as though the federal government has developed an app that's maybe a bit better. The, con- or the, uh, the COVID alert app, which has now been rolled out. It's, it's now active in Ontario, and it's going to be up to various provinces to de- decide whether they want to partner with the federal government and make this the default contact tracing app. So the same concerns apply, though, potentially. What are we dealing with here? How does this work? What kind of technology is it using to to find those contacts? What about the privacy concerns? Are people's locations being tracked, et cetera? So are we able to strike a balance here where we're respecting privacy, but we still have something potentially effective as a tool in in catching these cases. Our next guest has taken a close look at this and wrote a really interesting piece on his website. Uh, Michael Geist is law professor at the University of Ottawa, also Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. He's also with the Center for Law, Technology and Society. More at michaelgeist.ca. Dr. Geist, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome. Well, to thanks for having me. Uh, all right. So, I mean, it's taken a while for the federal government to rule this out, but at the same time, maybe... Maybe there's some value in the federal government having taken its time. So going into this in your own experience and looking at this app and working with it, what were the concerns and and questions that you had? 
Well, I think the concerns, and you've, you've highlighted them right off the top, I think there are certainly privacy concerns with respect to the app itself, what kind of data is being collected, how is it secured, how might it be used. There's questions, of course, about what happens once this all finally comes to an end, about decommissioning the app. And then there are access questions about how do you ensure that uh, as many people as possible have the ability to install the app and use it. And some of those questions, I think, are well answered by the federal government and others not so much. So in terms of, of uh, how this works and, and what technology in, in the phones is being used to, to make that connection, uh, Alberta's AB Trace Together app was using Bluetooth technology. Uh, how, how does the uh, COVID Alert app work? Yeah, COVID Alert uses Bluetooth as well. I mean, I th- as I'm sure you know, many countries started experimenting with these different apps pretty early in the process. And at least the federal government's come come a bit later to this. And I think a, a consensus has, has now, frankly, long emerged that GPS-type location tracking simply isn't very effective and raises some real concerns as the, as the technology for this app. For one thing, it doesn't really tell you if someone's in close proximity necessarily to somebody else. We could be in the same building, you on one floor, I could be on another floor. And yet, from a GPS perspective, it would largely look the same. So it doesn't work very well. And of course, then it also raises some of the very specific location-based information uh, where someone can know where you are. Whereas if you use Bluetooth, you can use it with respect to how close I am to someone else without necessarily knowing my precise location. I do think it's worth noting that while, of course, there is an Alberta app and a federal government app, they are really not the same. The the Alberta app is a contract tracing app, as, as AB Trace Together would suggest. It's designed to assist in contact tracing. The federal government app is an exposure notification app. It really doesn't play into this collection of data that then may help in the act of contact tracing. Instead, it is designed to notify individuals when they may have been exposed uh, to someone who has tested positive. Okay, and and that's an important distinction then. So it doesn't require any sort of data to, to be gathered then. Exactly. So it's it's more limited in a certain sense for those that look to these apps to play a role in helping to support contact tracing activities. This app isn't designed to do that. Um, and that, depending on your perspective, is a feature or a bug. Some might say that's a disappointment that these apps could be used to try to assist with the act of contact tracing. Others would say those contact tracing apps raise real challenges. Uh, from a privacy perspective, from a collection of the data perspective, uh, from a perspective of having enough people install and use it, whereas an exposure notification app, in certain respects, is somewhat less ambitious. It really is just designed to have people install it on their phones and where down within a couple of weeks, if someone who they've been in close proximity to um, and for a period of time, for at least 15 minutes, as long as that's taken place and someone then tests positive, they then insert a key or code into the app itself, and it notifies anyone uh, that may have been affected over that prior period. Right. So anyone then, so once someone's in close proximity to somebody else, uh, two meters, and I think it's 15 minutes, right. uh, that on both their apps, it would, it would note that connection then essentially, it would note the Bluetooth connection. Uh, so if at some point then in, in the coming days, one of those individuals tests positive, uh, healthcare authorities would be able then to say, okay, you have this app, uh, it's going to push out the alert, 
And so that alert then will go to any of the phones who, who had this established connection, essentially. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so important to note that it's really just setting up randomized keys or codes for each of these individual devices. So it's not linked to a specific person. It's not the government collecting all of this information. What you really get is on your own device information stored about other devices that you've come in contact with over that two-week period after two weeks that the information flushes for that particular day. Uh, and so you've got that information reside that resides locally. If you happen to go in for a test, COVID test, and you test positive, you can obtain a key that you then insert into the app, and then there's that ability to then notify anyone uh, that essentially did come into contact in that prior period. Oh, and so the user would do that? The user is the one, the, the, the person who tests positive, the user is the one that would oh, insert the, the code notifying uh, essentially the system that they've tested positive, and then the alert would go out to anyone who had been in close proximity to that user over the prior period. Uh, so from your perspective then, I mean, is, is that a, a reasonable way of, of deploying this kind of technology? Does it strike a, a good balance as far as you can see? Well, I think from a privacy perspective, the answer is yes. In fact, the, it's now been reviewed by two privacy commissioners, both the federal commissioner and the Ontario commissioner, and both reached the conclusion that um, that, that it was fine from a privacy perspective, that the, the case that was being made from a public health perspective was a good one. Uh, and, I mean, there was an argument to be made that privacy law didn't even apply in those circumstances because it's not clear necessarily that personal information was being collected. Now, I think that's a problem with our privacy laws generally, that these kinds of issues Issues might not qualify, uh, but nevertheless, it highlights that there is a bit of remoteness to the specific personal information. So I think the privacy side is quite strong. I think most people who have taken a look at it um, have reached that same conclusion. There are concerns, though. It works only with newer phones, and so for many people who may have older phones, they'll find that the app simply won't work. And of course, you have to have phones to begin with to, to make this work. And so there are, I think, ongoing concerns from an equity perspective, where uh, this is readily accessible and available to some, but not everyone. And of course, this works better if everybody has it. Um, and I think it's viewed quite rightly as a real problem when there are some in our society that uh, have, have the ability to use this tool, and there are others that do not. And I should note as well that there is that 14-day that period, so any information that's collected, or at least any of these connections, these Bluetooth connections that are made, those will automatically be deleted after 14 days? Is that right? Right. There's a recognition that if what we're doing is trying to identify that you've been exposed and that there is a risk there, that the 14-day period makes some sense, of course, because once you're beyond the 14-day period, uh, the fact that you may have come into contact with someone, say, three weeks ago, you would have presumably shown some kind of symptoms between now and at that time. So, well, on the surface, then, there, there are, uh, as you say, um, that, that a lot of these issues are sufficiently addressed. Uh, once this is, if it is, widely adopted and widely used, there, there may be other issues that arise that, that maybe weren't foreseen or, or maybe that we're not aware of at the moment. What kind of ongoing review do you think is necessary around this? Well, you do have to have, I think, independent oversight of these kinds of systems, and the government has tried to respond to that particular concern as well. So, for example, there is an independent committee that they've struck 
uh, comprised of a series of privacy and security experts who are there for review. Both privacy commissioners, I mentioned the federal and now the Ontario privacy commissioner, uh, have made it clear they will remain actively engaged. And on the assumption that this rolls out in other provinces, uh, they've announced that there's an expectation we'll see it both in Atlantic Canada and B.C. as the next uh, landing spots for the app. Presumably their privacy authorities would get involved as well. All right. More of your analysis at michaelgeist.ca. Professor Geist, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Uh, Michael Geist, law professor, University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, michaelgeist.ca. And so his analysis uh, of this COVID alert app and what he likes about it, where there's still some, some potential issues or questions. So far through this pandemic... About 540 Albertans have been hospitalized as a result of COVID-19. We've seen hospitalization numbers uh, jump a bit recently. Now, they were down, I think at the end of May, we were around uh, 50. Then into June, we uh, bottomed out at around 40, just over 40 in hospital. That number's come back up. Uh, As of yesterday, 91 people were in hospital. 18 of them were in intensive care. But that's more than just a statistic, right? What requires somebody to be hospitalized? And what does that mean in terms of their recovery? I mean, certainly there's a cost to the healthcare system when it comes to hospitalizing somebody. And, and obviously, intensive care and intubation just adds to that. But this disease, when it manifests itself seriously enough that somebody requires hospitalization, there's a lot more to the story in terms of how long they remain, in terms of what their recovery is. Some new data from Alberta Health is giving us a clear understanding of that. Those that have been hospitalized as a result of COVID-19 have spent more than 10 days in hospital on average. For those in ICU, that number is 13 days in terms of an average stay. And of course, just being discharged from the hospital does not mean the end of the ordeal. Joining us to talk a bit more about some of these numbers and also to touch on the uh, mask issue, which we've uh, spoken with her before. Very pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Amy Tan, a family physician uh, here in Calgary, also an associate professor at the University of Calgary Cummings School of Medicine. Dr. Tan, good to talk to you. You're welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, let me get your thoughts first of all. As of tomorrow, Calgary's uh, mask bylaw takes effect. Edmonton is following suit. Other municipalities in Alberta are... Uh, close to that point, uh, so to varying degrees across the province. What's your sense of how far this issue has come along in the last few weeks? It's been quite the um, roller coaster of activity, and we're really glad as a group, Mass for Canada, that Calgary, Edmonton, and Banff actually now all have masked bylaws. Um, there's a little bit of patchwork, and so, you know, as people travel from one place to another, there's going to be a little bit of confusion, and so still hoping for at some point the whole province to be covered and as safe as possible, but absolutely really happy with the progress that um, our municipalities are, are making in their leadership. Yeah, it was interesting. The mayor today, you know, pointed out this will be reviewed in, in six weeks, and they, they sort of intentionally didn't put in an end date or a threshold uh, that this will be reviewed on an ongoing basis. And I suspect some municipalities are, are in the same situation. Some municipalities are going to use the guideline of, you know, if, if they're in that, that warning zone or that, uh, that alert zone, that maybe that would trigger a mask bylaw. What, what's your sense in terms of you know, what, what should trigger it and, you know, what 
what would no longer require us to have uh, a mask requirement, do you think? Right. So in terms of triggering, I think actually, I think we're of the mindset to actually do this as a proactive measure. So like Nova Scotia now has a mask mandate and they have zero cases. And that's very excellent foresight because how do you keep cases as low as possible? You do every preventative health measure you can, physical distancing, hand washing, and mask wearing to keep cases as low as you can. My concern with um, one municipality saying, you know, when we get to the enhanced level, not even the watch level, the enhanced level, I fear that's too late because it takes two weeks to have the effects of that. And so if things are already out of control with the enhanced measures my concern is using that as a trigger is you're at least two to four weeks too late so that's the first thing and then in terms of things to look out for um yes there's so many factors to look into but absolutely if you've had zero new cases or you know just a one or a couple handful and you have specific known outbreaks and your community transmission is um, able to be traced back to a certain source, you might be able to say, you know, after 14 days of of relative low activity that you could try to ease off. Mm -hmm. And so there's, and that's why I think the municipalities are saying, you know, we just have to monitor this because yes, this is a novel pandemic. We don't have hard and fast threshold numbers to say, okay, masks are done. Yeah, I think it's similar for a lot of things. I mean, the border's closed, uh, as an example. I I don't know when the border's going to open. I guess we'll just have to decide when we think it's best, because, you know, we didn't bake into that decision that at a certain point it's automatically going to open, right? We're doing a lot of different things to respond to this pandemic, and when those end, I guess, will depend on a lot of things, probably. Absolutely, and constant surveillance and flexibility and re-engaging with, you know, new evidence is all part of this. And so it's it's really real-time science being lived in the public. Right. Let me get your, your take on these um, these numbers from Alberta Health. And, you know, because we talk about hospitalizations almost like a statistic, and we, we don't get mm-hmm. a chance, I think, to tell the story of, you know, what people are going through when they experience a, a more severe manifestation of this disease and what it actually means to be hospitalized or even admitted to intensive care. So mm-hmm. what do you make of those numbers, first of all? Yeah, so in terms of the length of stay numbers, just to be clear, is that what you're asking me? Yeah, the, the uh, average stay in hospital, the 10 yeah. days in hospital on average, 13 days on average uh, in the ICU. Are, are those about what you've, you know, your, your sense of what's fairly typical? Well, and there's so many reasons for why one is admitted, but I would actually say that those are on the longer side. Um, okay. You know, especially the ICU of almost two weeks, usually, and if you look at all com- all comers data, so for any reason to be in the ICU, it's usually in a matter of four or five days um, as an average. I mean, obviously, there's many cases that are much longer in ICU, but that's kind of the world statistic average for every diagnosis. So two weeks shows what a huge burden of disease um, COVID-19 has. And this correlates with what we're learning more and more um, about what this disease can do. It's not just um, your lungs that can be affected. We're seeing blood clots in organs um, in autopsies of people who've died from COVID in far-reaching organs other than the lungs. We've seen um, also long side effects and symptoms such as brain fogginess and inattention to detail and extreme debilitating fatigue and shortness of breath, chest pain, nausea, um, that 
people, even when they get out of the hospital, they actually are not able to resume their life. So they're not going back to work right away. They are having to go through rehabilitation. They're trying to um, manage their symptoms along with the healthcare providers who are learning, you know, the, the trajectory of this disease alongside with them. Yeah, so we look at those numbers 10 days on average, but let's say a hospital stay is 10 days, uh, that it's not as though at the end of those 10 days they hop out of bed, they're feeling great, and they walk out the door. No, unfortunately, because they've been sick for a while, COVID takes a lot out of you, and being bed-bound um, in hospital also then decreases your muscle mass and causes you weakness. So not only are you recovering from being extremely sick, you're also recovering from those symptoms as well. ICU is even more. Like we know for other diagnoses for ICU, you know, there is some trauma. Um, there, If somebody is sick enough to be in the ICU, they are sick enough with the medications and also with an infectious process to be so sick that they could be delirious. And oftentimes that gets manifested as not understanding what's going on around you and there's machines and it's 24 hours of noise and humming and people talking to you that you don't know what's going on. If you're intubated, you're not able to speak. And we are learning more and more that post ICU, on top of the physical rehabilitation that needed to get you back to you know, strength so that you can actually endure a, a whole day of work and doing what you need to do like you did before, there's also the psychological effects. So post-ICU, post-traumatic stress is now something that we actually are paying attention to and trying to bridge the gap when people come out of ICU, that it is a long haul after to recover from. Right. I mean, especially with this, uh, you know, a new disease like this and just the unpredictability of this disease, not knowing whether, whether you're going to survive mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, being alone, not being able to have family there at your Absolutely. side every day. Right. I mean, that, that, that all adds up to a pretty traumatic experience, I would imagine. Absolutely. Um, and um, when you're in the ICU and you don't have your loved one at the bedside and you're, you know, trying to ask for help and you can't move and you are intubated, um, that is a very scary thing. Um, so absolutely not having visitors because of COVID restrictions adds a whole other layer of uh, distress for sure. Uh, on, on the other side of it, though, I mean, it, it is encouraging that we, you know, we are, we are learning more about this disease. I think we're doing a better job at, you know, in, ensuring that we avoid those worst outcomes. Certainly deaths uh, have come down even in the U.S., which is hard hit. Um, you know, we're doing a better job of saving people's lives. Uh, so we're, we, yeah. we are certainly learning about this disease. And I know even at the outset, when, when it's possible, I mean, ideally, we, we, we don't want to have to admit somebody to hospital. Obviously, if it's necessary, it's necessary. But, right. you know, we saw what happened to the Misericordia in Edmonton. I mean, there was that concern, too, right, about uh, introducing COVID into the hospital setting and the challenges that that presents, too. Absolutely. And so the other point to this, though, is that we actually are learning more about kind of that middle group that is not sick enough to be hospitalized, but they aren't bouncing back after two weeks mm-hmm. as per the definition of re- recovered. And just this week alone, there's a new study that showed um, out of Germany that 78% of the survivors that they tested two to three months out from diagnosis um, had irreparable heart um, inflammation markers and 
which could lead to things like heart failure and heart attacks and clots. So these were young people, average age of 49. Um, they were two to three months out from diagnosis. And remarkably, two-thirds of these patients had never been hospitalized, yet they had long-lasting heart muscle damage. So these are the things that we're concerned about. Like We're learning more and more about this disease as we we come out with um, more data. And, you know, we're not trying to say don't live your life and try to be careful as possible, but we really are really trying to say that this is this threat is not over and this threat is not um, benign, that we don't know until you get it how it's going to affect you. And unfortunately, we are seeing more evidence that even if you are not hospitalized, you can actually still have long-lasting effects and symptoms. If you are hospitalized, it can be a long road. So it's not just the death numbers that we should be looking at. It's also not just the ICU capacity numbers, because these are human beings who are going to be suffering. And I think that's been lost in the numbers. And so I appreciate you, you know, the opportunity to have this conversation about, you know, the stories behind these. Well, we appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon and uh, offering some insight on all of this. Dr. Tan, thanks again. Appreciate you joining us here. All the best. Thanks so much. Uh, That's uh, Dr. Amy Tan, family physician uh, here in Calgary, also an associate professor, University of Calgary, coming School of Medicine. So uh, some thoughts on the mass debate, but also, you know, putting a a little more um, understanding, a little more context around hospitalizations and what that represents. All right, testing is has been a, a crucial part of the response to COVID nineteen, and, and Alberta has been in a good position uh, through this pandemic in terms of the amount of testing we're able to do, and and the ability to get that done quickly and, and the results quickly. That's crucial. Uh, maybe things have stalled a little bit in recent weeks, but uh, there seems to be a real push to to ramp that up even further as we get into the fall and winter months. But there's another aspect to the testing story, and I think at some point it's, it's got to be a part of our response. And hopefully we're not setting too high a bar for something that could be a really effective tool. The ability to have rapid test results, the ability even for people to be able to administer a test themselves, you know, some kind of a, a saliva test, the thing you could do at home, get results in, in 15 or 20 minutes almost like a, a pregnancy test, kind of. Like that that potentially could be a game changer. Now, there's a reason why we do the swabs and the PCR test is because it is kind of the gold standard in terms of accuracy. You know, false negatives can be problematic. Someone's positive, they're told they're negative. You can see where that might lead to some problems. However, if we were able to do a lot of this kind of rapid testing, that would still find a lot of cases that maybe otherwise wouldn't be caught or wouldn't be caught quickly. In other words, whatever concern there might be about the accuracy of these tests, the benefit of doing a lot of these tests might outweigh that, might outweigh it by quite a bit. So are we letting, as they say, perfect be the enemy of the good? Certainly in the U.S., it appears the FDA is reluctant to approve a lot of these at-home and rapid tests because of these accuracy concerns. It's an interesting uh, post on all of this up at marginalrevolution.com, looking at all sides of this. Joining us to talk more about it is uh, the author of that piece, Alex Tabrock, is with us, uh, Bartley J. Madden, Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center, also Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Alex, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me. I mean, on the surface, when it comes to the testing we're doing right now, it's it's important that we can give people an accurate result. I, I mean, that, that aspect is understandable. But when we look at, you know, the idea of rapid and, and at-home testing, how do you think we should be approaching that question? So I think there are two issues. Uh, one question is, are you infected? Uh, but the other question is, are you infectious? That is, will you transmit the virus to somebody else? Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to know, are you infected, then kind of a PCR test is the most sensitive test. It will pick up even if there's a small amount of virus in your system. But if there's a small amount of virus in your system, then you're probably not infectious. Uh, and that's where these more rapid, frequent tests come in because they're not as sensitive. Uh, If you have just a tiny amount of virus, they won't pick that up. But if you have enough virus to infect someone else, then these tests are very accurate, and they'll pick that up. So this is why having these frequent, rapid tests can actually be much, much better than having a more sensitive test, because you can give one of these cheap tests every single day. So you find out very quickly whether you're infectious, and that's really what we need to stop this virus from transmitting to other people. Right. So in other words, we, we, we stand a pretty good chance of catching a lot of the people who are the ones most at risk of spreading this virus. Even if some are falling through the cracks, we're still finding a lot of these tests or a lot of these results that, that probably really aren't being caught right now at all, are they? Exactly. So not only, uh, the only way, you, even if you have the most sensitive test, the PCR test, Well, you have to have actually taken the test for the test to work. But, you know, you can't have one of these tests every day, right? So a test that is too expensive or unavailable or a test which doesn't return its results for a week or two, that's practically useless. You know, in the United States right now, uh, we have such an overwhelming demand that these tests are not reporting sometimes for as much as two weeks which is essentially like not taking a test at all, essentially useless. On the other hand, there are uh, scientists have developed these uh, paper strip tests, like as exactly as you said, like a pregnancy test, which you can take every single day. They're very cheap. They could be mass manufactured for $5 or less a test. And you can take that every single day. And if the test on day one, you know, doesn't pick up that uh, you have the virus, Well, that's okay, because on day two or on day three, when the virus increases in your system, it will pick that up. So you'll learn much more quickly that you actually have um, the virus, and then you can uh, isolate and quarantine and stop the transmission. Well, and yeah, I mean, you think about how huge that would be. I mean, back to school is an obvious one, or even the potential of, of allowing travel again, or, or you know, people crossing borders, getting an airplane. I mean, in, in so many respects, this could be a game changer. So why is there such a reluctance, you know, to, to embrace this on a large scale? So I think the mistake that the FDA has made, well, two mistakes. One is they're just overly cautious, and they always have been. And when you combine a virus which grows exponentially with an overly cautious FDA, that is a recipe for disaster. And that is what has happened in the United States. We have been behind the virus 
at every single step. And if you let the virus get ahead of you, then it's just much, much more difficult to stop because it grows so quickly. So in a situation where you have exponential growth, caution is risky. Caution is dangerous. And that's what the FDA has done. The second error is that they have compared these fast, cheap, inexpensive tests uh, with the gold standard, with the PCR test. And they said, well, these paper strip tests, they're not as accurate. They're not as accurate as the PCR test. Therefore, we don't want to approve them. But that's the wrong comparison to make. The right comparison is not to compare head-to-head tests. It's to compare testing regimes. So what, do you want, what you want to compare is a PCR test of, you know, once every week or once every two weeks, okay, with mm-hmm. a paper strip test of every day. And when you do that, the paper strip test is much, much more likely to find an infection quickly, to reduce the infection rate, to stop the virus in its tracks. So it's comparing testing regimes rather than comparing a test head-to-head. That's the way you want to go. Yeah, and, and certainly cost. I mean, you know, that, that's that's a factor here as well, the, the PCR test and having, you know, the swabs and the, the staff and sending it off to the lab and the processing. You know, there, there's a considerable cost uh, to doing all of that testing. These these tests that we're talking about, these at-home, uh, you know, the paper strip saliva tests, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, these are quite cheap and certainly a lot cheaper by comparison, aren't they? Absolutely. And the cost is also why they're slow, because uh, you need to collect it with a, a somebody, a, a health professional who has appropriate uh, PPE, right? And then it has yeah. to be shipped to one of only, you know, a dozen or two dozen labs in the country. And like, you know, in the U.S. right now and in Canada as well, the way this works is you get the test and then they're uh, uh, sent that night on an airplane, okay? An airplane goes from town to town to town every night picking up tests and taking them to a central lab where the tests are run in, you know, big complicated machines uh, using uh, highly paid uh, technicians because it's a skilled uh, job. So that's why it's expensive. That's also why it's slow. On the other hand, the paper strip test, anyone can do it. Uh, A saliva test uh, can be done much more faster. And if you find that uh, you're positive, well, then you can take a second test or go get the PCR test. Right. So, again, you have to compare testing regimes. And uh, it's only if you find out that you're positive, well, it might be an error, but that's okay. Now go get the PCR test. So that's a much better system where we have these rapid tests where we can open the schools, open the universities, open workplaces. You know, we can have these tests are cheap enough so that uh, every day when you go to work, you could take one of these tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a paper this week from uh, researchers at Harvard University and looked at the, the benefit of this kind of testing uh, and, and makes the argument about how effective this can be in, in doing more rapid contact tracing as well. So I, I think that's certainly another piece of evidence that hopefully will will shift the tide a little bit in this conversation. Do you get a sense maybe that things are changing or there, there's a growing willingness to, to deploy this potential resource? Well, I hope so, because, as I said, we've just been behind the virus at every step of the way. 
And in order to beat the virus down, we have to get ahead of it. Uh, one way is by using these uh, saliva tests, paper strip tests. Uh, we also need to use pool testing much, much more. Mm-hmm. more. And the FDA only just recently uh, allowed, if you submit the right paperwork, uh, pool testing. Uh, pool testing, as I'm sure you know, is where you test several samples together. You test, you know, four or five or six samples together. And if they come back negative, then that's fine. Everyone is negative. Uh, if they come back positive, then you have to retest. But because not every pool of five or six is going to come back positive, you can actually save a lot of tests this way. So pool testing is equivalent to increasing your uh, the effective number of tests, you can double or triple overnight just by changing the way that you do the tests. You can double your testing capacity. And, again, that's really what we need to get ahead of this virus. Absolutely. Uh, well, people read more again at marginalrevolution.com. Alex, thanks again for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Good talking with you. Likewise, all the best. Alex Tabarrok is uh, Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercantist Center and also Professor of Economics at George Mason University. And so his piece, Frequent, Fast, and Cheap, is Better Than Sensitive. And he makes a pretty compelling case. Uh, Same thing with these uh, researchers at Harvard, as they call it perfect as the enemy of the good, using low-sensitivity tests to mitigate coronavirus outbreaks. So I think we need to embrace this, and, and we shouldn't get too hung up on the sensitivity and it is an interesting point he makes about infected versus infectious. Your likelihood of infecting somebody else is obviously going to depend on your viral load and how much virus you're shedding. So some people are more infectious than others. So that's the thing with these tests. The more infectious you are, the more likely you're going to get a positive result. I'll admit, I mean, there is something uh, enjoyable about uh, having a couple of uh, adult beverages outdoors. Not too long ago, we got one of those propane fire tables uh, for our deck. And, you know, the nice weather this week, it's uh, very enjoyable indeed. I mean, it's, it's not an option for everybody, obviously. And especially, you know, living in a, a city like Toronto, the idea of having a, a deck in a backyard, uh, that's, that's out of reach for a lot of people. So as Toronto police have been uh, cracking down on people consuming alcohol in the park, it's going to spark this debate about whether it's something we really ought to be cracking down on. Maybe the opposite, actually. Uh, the city of Vancouver is embarking on a pilot project. They're going to be allowing uh, alcohol consumption in a few outdoor areas and a few city parks, recognizing that, look, let's be realistic. People are going to get together. They're going to socialize. They're going to have a few drinks. That's going to happen. And we can wag our finger all we want, but that's the reality. Given the concerns about people being at uh, crowded house parties or in crowded bars, maybe this is a safer option for that kind of an activity. Maybe we should look at it almost in, in a harm reduction way. So joining us to talk a bit more about you know, how we approach these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Dr. Zane Chagla. He was uh, with McMaster University, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine, also an infectious disease physician. Dr. Chagla, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome yeah. to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what's your sense in terms of how we, you know, we mitigate the risk of, of house parties and, and bars and whether we should be exploring this option of allowing maybe more of this outdoors? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you've talked about some of the basic concepts there, right? And so, you know, as we're going on with COVID-19, I think there there have to be strategies to not only just say to people, you can't do X and Y, and more saying, listen, like, we understand you're doing X and Y. Here's how we can do it safely, or here's how we can work to mitigate the risk. And, and that innovation needs to come not only from the medical community, but also probably from public planning communities. Vancouver is taking a very reasonable step here. And as you said, not everyone has access to uh, a place where they can distance outdoors, where it's relatively low risk and enjoy spending time with others, even in that that, that uh, protected setting. Um, so, you know, innovating and saying, listen, like I would rather have 10 to 20 people in a park where they're going to drink and enjoy themselves in a, in a controlled manner with bylaws and enforcement, uh, you know, at least making sure that nothing crazy happens rather than having 20 people in someone's basement drinking and, and having a transmission event, which we've seen in Kelowna, we've seen in Ottawa, yeah. we've seen in many other settings. Yeah, I think I saw the, the, the number today, the, the, what they're calling the Kelowna cluster now represents half of all of the active cases in BC. There's a story today mm-hmm. I saw about uh, a bar in France. One positive mm-hmm. individual has now led to, at this point, 72 and counting positive cases. So, yeah, those, those concerns are, are very real, aren't they? Yeah, and I think, you know what, like as infectious disease physicians and, and, and uh, we deal with people that have behaviors that put them at risk, right? And the whole field of sexual health is, we're not telling people to be abstinent. We're telling people to mitigate their risk, use condoms, know about your partners, seek mm-hmm. care if you do develop symptoms, that type of thing. So why can't that approach be, be applied here? We know the outdoors is a setting with natural ventilation, UV light, where we've had relatively minimal transmission. I can't say zero transmission, but relatively minimal yeah. transmission. So, yeah, as a strategy for people who who are engaging in this, it's, it's, it's an appropriate strategy to say, while the weather's good, why can't we have people outdoors? And it's not a novel strategy. Like, in many European countries, this is just normal in that sense, mm-hmm. right? That people are just allowed to drink in parks as long as they behave themselves and they're enforced as part of that. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's unfortunate that, I mean, here we are, tomorrow's August, and, and we're, mm-hmm. we're kind of getting around now to exploring this idea. I know Vancouver is a little more temperate, but, you know, here in, in Calgary, the idea of, of going out in the park, well, we got maybe a couple of months <laughs> of, of that as an option, and then it, yeah. it's off the table, and that, that's true for a lot of the country. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think we, we are, there's also a lot going on, obviously, in September. We need kind of our community transmission rates being lower. So there's still reason to explore these options now, right? And, and again, similarly, there's, there's reasons to consider exploring them through the year. I mean, you know, uh, there's, there's much lower of a risk in, in, in a heated outdoor setting probably than still putting people indoors in that sense. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's still not something that could be lost through some of the wintertime weather, Um uh, and, 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 you know, there's, there's lots of very bright people in, in public policy planning, urban planning, kind of promotion, that type of thing that could very well look into an idea like this, make it actually very attractive to the audience and the demographic that want to use it, make it enforceable so that, you know, the, the local communities aren't too disturbed by it. But at the end of the day, this is a public health issue that's going to affect us all. 
having as little transmission or at least innovating to minimize transmission is probably a whole lot more important than particular beliefs and values around, uh, you know, uh, what people do in, in their own homes and, and in, in private. Mm-hmm. Although I will say one thing Calgary did early on and other cities have done it. And, and I saw uh, some images out of New York the other day and they've jumped on this a big way and in allowing bars and restaurants to to expand their patios to sort of set up makeshift patios to close streets and, and have tables uh, set up on those those closed streets because mm-hmm. you know recognizing too that look restaurants and bars are, are businesses they employ people if there's a way to help them do well and create safer conditions that, that that's something uh that, that yeah. certainly makes sense doesn't it yeah and i think in, in a in, you know in a smaller city that that may work really well where there's a limited number of bars and it, it would fit you know, all the people that want to engage them in a given night and, and certainly that's part of the, the you know planning is that you use uh, Define spaces that can be policed and, and and within the definitions of what a bar and a restaurant can offer. But as you said, like you know, in the in the Greater Toronto area, the Greater Vancouver area, the Greater Calgary area, there are probably a lot of people living in parts, uh, and there's probably not enough places for them to to hang out in a bar and on a patio on any given night. Um, and, and we know that there are these types of parties happening. So even in places like Kelowna and Ottawa, which may have outdoor establishments or uh, patios, people are still doing this. So, right. you know, I, I think there, there's an important piece there is, you know, at least encouraging people to do this, making an available opportunity for them, innovating with the industry uh, and, and considering ways to just get people out of their house and in outdoors if they're going to do something. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of cities, Calgary included, uh, are, are bringing in mask bylaws, but obviously, mm-hmm. you know, in a setting where people are having drinks or dinner, they're not wearing masks. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, this new national uh, tracking app that's being launched today. You know, countries like South Korea have, you know, rules in place where people have to scan their ID before they go to bars mm-hmm. or even the idea of taking contact information from people. What, what other kinds of approaches can we take to either minimize the risk when it comes to these kinds of establishments or or be able to deal with a problem better when it arises? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what, what the South Korean approach has been very reasonable is, is like signing in or having some sort of tracking of where you are if you're going to go to a bar and establishment having a paper record of it. You know, unfortunately, I can't remember what I had for breakfast two days ago. Some people sure. can't remember where they were, what hours they were at place X or Y, right? So, you know, it's a good idea for people as things are getting more progressive and out there and open that they actually keep a relatively good track of their records because you might just get a, a news story saying, hey, people in this bar at this point in time, please go get tested. You might have been exposed. The app is also a nice uh, nice addition because it, it gives you a second layer in that sense, but it really has to be used by multiple people to get it working. They need mm-hmm. similar things like these innovations. If you're going to have an event or outdoor stuff, you know, tie it to, to checking in, tie it to getting contact trace, tie it to getting a QR code or something like that uh, so that there is that additional layer of safety. If something does go wrong, then at least you can go back and say, okay, we know all these people very quickly that were there. Absolutely. Uh, we got to leave it there. Professor Chagla, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. No problem. All the best. All right. Take care. Uh, Zane Chagla, Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University, Infectious Disease uh, Specialist. So his thoughts on kind of that harm reduction approach, if you want to call it that, of saying, we got all these parks, all this green space. Why don't we let people socialize a little bit more in these these places? Why not let people 
if they want to get together with some friends and have a few drinks, give them the option of doing it in, in a location where they're outside, there's room to distance. Now, getting stopped by police can be stressful. You know, in fact, traffic stops can be stressful for both parties. You get pulled over by police, that's stressful, and I suppose officers don't always know what they're about to encounter. But now COVID-19 has added an additional level of stress to that, right? So the idea is, would typically be the case in a traffic stop of you rolling down your window and the police officer being right there in your face to ask you some questions. Well, now you've got a potential risk to, to both. You don't know if that officer's potentially uh, in- infected and they don't know if you are. So the wearing of masks might be reasonable. If you're a motorist and you get pulled over by a police officer, you may want to have a mask for that, that encounter. Or maybe you're wearing one anyway. Maybe you're wearing one in public. Maybe you're at a protest or a rally and you're wearing a mask. If you're wearing a mask because you feel it's important to wear one, and maybe you're wearing one for your own protection even, do you have the final say on, on when and whether you take it off? Can a police officer demand that you remove your mask? Can you refuse a request to remove your mask? I think there's some interesting issues that, that arise around some of these, these questions. Uh, our next guest has written a thoughtful blog about all of this. You can read it at kylalee.ca. Uh, joining us on the line to talk more about some of the issues uh, that that these, this raises here. Pleased to welcome to the program. The aforementioned Kyla Lee is a Vancouver-based criminal defense attorney. Uh, as mentioned, KylaLee.ca. Kyla, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back. I am curious, have there been issues in, in recent months where, you know, police have demanded this or people have refused uh, an order to remove masks? Have you heard of any cases? I've been seeing a couple clients now who've been going through their interactions with police wearing masks and who've been very concerned at the point in time at which the officer has said, okay, it's time for you to remove their mask. And they're concerned about whether or not they're obligated to do that and whether or not they're exposing themselves to risk by doing so. Uh, Let's take a step back. Um, What's your sense of of how policing has changed as a result of the pandemic in terms of, you know, roadblocks or check stops or traffic stops, even uh, the administration of of breathalyzers? Have have police practices, and maybe it varies across the country, mind you, but have police practices changed? I haven't really seen much change. At least where I am, most police officers aren't wearing masks. They're not distancing. They're not doing anything differently. But I do think that their jobs have become a lot more difficult because people are trying to maintain more distance. People are are wearing masks and people are concerned about those types of interactions in ways they weren't before. Well, yeah, even putting aside masks for the moment. I mean, if I'm pulled over by a police officer and they're standing right there at my window, can I refuse to roll down my window? Can I demand that they take a few steps back before I do? Well, these are, these are questions that our legal system hasn't really answered in this context. There have been cases that have found that refusing to roll down your window when instructed to do so and not producing documents because your window's up can constitute obstruction. But there have also been cases that find that just not rolling your window down very far is not on its own obstructing the officer in their duties. So we don't have an answer, really. Yeah, it's interesting. So when it comes to wearing a mask, and I would imagine a situation where someone's wearing something like an N95, right, uh, that they're wearing it because they're trying to protect themselves, that they have a vested interest in wearing that mask. But do they have the final say over whether and when to take it off? 
anytime you're dealing with a police officer, you have the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. It's one of our most fundamental charter rights. Um, and the police can't interfere with that right, and the law can't interfere with that right unless there's very good reason for doing so. So from my perspective, the only time you should be taking off a mask is if you are about to be providing a sample into a breathalyzer, because at that point, you need to do it, and you're legally obligated to comply. But beyond that, you shouldn't have to take it off so that the officer can have an opportunity to smell your breath, to hear how you're talking better, and to converse with you and learn information about you. Right. So if if police are, say, at a, at a rally or a protest, and, you know, they're, they're talking to participants for whatever reason, they're trying to gather information about something or whatever, so a police officer coming up to you in, in a public place... That's a situation then where it would be a little more clear, do you think, that, that there's no obligation to, to remove a mask? Absolutely, in that situation. And even if you're detained by police, unless there's some reason specifically related to that detention that they need you to remove the mask, you shouldn't be compelled to either. So if you're arrested for shoplifting, you shouldn't have to take your mask off. Um, you know, if you're arrested for some type of, a, of an assault where the description of your face or there might be an injury to your face that's concealed by the mask, they might have the right to ask you to remove it at that point. It's really going to depend on the type of investigation they're conducting. But if they're just conversing with you, you have every right to keep it on. Uh, the question of verifying identification, and that would be more relevant, I guess, in a, in a traffic stop situation where you produce your driver's license to the officer. Can they ask to remove a mask just for the purposes of verifying identification? In Canadian law, there's something called a Shriver's test, which is how your identity is determined, typically in a traffic stop situation, where you produce a piece of identification document and you state the name and address listed on that document. The original decision never had anything to do with the photo of the individual being compared to the person before them, although that's how it's evolved over time. But if you go back to the genesis of that law, it doesn't require them to look at your photo and compare you. And that's reasonable because there's lots of situations where people don't actually have their license and the comparison can't be done. Very interesting. Now, by the way, and we were talking earlier about you know the realities of of recovering from COVID-19 and, and the impact that the disease, disease can have. And I know you you spoke about it quite openly at the time. I guess that was back in March, wasn't it? You had been in the United States and then you got pretty hard hit by this, this disease. Mm -hmm. Just what that was like and, and how you're doing now. I'm doing well now. I have flare-ups of symptoms. It's really weird where all of the symptoms come back, including a, a fever that lasts for about 10 days. Um, there's no explanation for it. I've been hospitalized twice with numerous tests done to try and figure out what's going on. And the conclusion is that this is just the virus reactivating for some reason and that I just need to wait it out. Yeah, and I've heard those stories of people who have had it and, and recovered, but then still have lingering issues uh, that, that they're dealing with. So that's another example of that. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, this this is something serious, and, and I think that, that makes all of these other issues quite relevant, too. So people can read more at uh, kylalee.ca. Kyla, I always appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here. Thank you for having me. All right, take care. Uh, that's Kyla Lee, Vancouver-based criminal defense attorney. Uh, you can read more at her website, uh, Kyla Lee. .ca, including her blog post on some of these issues around mask wearing and you know whether police are in a position to order you to remove a mask if you're wearing one. So it's kind of the flip side uh, of the mandatory mask bylaws.
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.